Good morning. Uh, good morning to all of you uh, joining us in McKenneth Chapel and my live stream as well. Many of our faculty and staff will have had the privilege of knowing uh, the late Dr. Dennis Kenlaw, a former professor here at the seminary, a two-time president of Asbury University, and the founder of the Francis Asbury Society. Uh, he was gifted with a keen theological mind, and there are certainly hundreds of men and women throughout the world who count him as a mentor. And we are privileged today to be joined, we already mentioned earlier, John Ron Smith, the current president of FAS, and some of their staff with us, in fact, as well as Dr. Kenlaw's granddaughter, Crooked Albertson. So good to have all of you here today. I had the privilege of knowing Dr. Kenlaw during the last eight years of his life, and I would go by and see him from time to time and talk about theology and the challenges of uh, serving these two historic institutions here in Wilmore. And one afternoon when we were visiting, I asked Dr. Kenlaw what in his view was the most urgent, most important theological issue facing the church today. Now if you ask a question like that, Dr. Kenlaw, you want to be up on the edge of your seat. So get on the edge of your seat. He looked at me, and he smiled at me and kind of giggled in that kind of classic Dr. Kenlaw response. He chuckled a little bit, and with a twinkle in his eye, he said to me just one word, personhood, personhood. My central question in this, my 13th convocation message at Asbury Seminary is this, why did Dr. Kenlaw answer my question with a single word, personhood? This notion of person was raised in more gra graphic and more pointed way in the first sentence of Carl Truman's 2020 landmark book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He opens his book like this. The origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has become regarded as coherent and meaningful. And here's a statement. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. This sentence to our grandparents would appear to be nothing less than nonsensical gibberish. But today, it's not only regarded as meaningful, authentic statement, but as Truman points out, to deny such a statement today is regarded as stupid, immoral, or subject to some irrational phobia. This is a very important question. Why is that? As theological students, it is vital that you be able to look back and look beneath the presenting issues of our day, whether it be transgenderism or other division of society or the scourge of racism or any other. What are the deeper issues at play? That is what a theological education is for. There's a classic line in Sherlock Holmes where Watson turns to Sherlock with amazement of his ability to deduce things. And Sherlock Holmes famously says to Watson, you see, but you do not observe. As future leaders of the church, it's not enough to simply see what's going on in our culture around us. We must observe. We must deeply understand what is happening and why is it happening in our day. At the heart of this statement put forth by Truman, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, and dozens of similar statements emerging across the cultural landscape, is the unspoken deeper issue of personhood and the very nature of how the self is understood in late modernity. 
Charles Taylor, the eminent Canadian philosopher in his book, Source of the Self, The Making of Modern Identity, points out that we're experiencing a radical new form of individualism, which he, following uh, Art Bella in his classic book, Habits of the Heart, calls expressive individualism. This is a fundamental turn which is different from the normal kind of individualism which has always characterized American society. We're actually witnessing a whole new vision of human identity which is marked by quite a few features. I will name five of them. First, this new vision of human personhood has created a seismic dualistic separation or fracturing of the human will from the physical body. In this twist of neo-Gnostic dualism, our bodies become moldable like plastic contingent instruments which must be conformed to the intuitions, feelings, and what other social constructions we may dream of in order to conform to our best understanding of ourselves. Alastair McIntyre, the Scottish ethicist, calls this dualistic view of personhood as a view of self which is, and I quote, forgetful of the body. Expressive individualism is just one of the leading terms for this phenomenon, but others like Michael Sundell have called this the unencumbered self. The common point, however, is a self has been severed from the body, and this new self is a self-originating, socially constructed source of all claims. And you couldn't possibly be in this generation and not be aware of this all around us. Second, this new vision of human personhood has moved us as a culture and society from what Charles Taylor calls a transcendent frame to an eminent frame. By this he means our society has fully jettisoned any transcendent moral or ethical foundations or boundaries to our existence or our decision, which either refers to or defers to God or any other authoritative source, whether the Oracle of Delphi, Confucian ethics, or the God of biblical revelation. The imminent frame refers to the, sol socially, uh, the solitary, socially constructed self, leading to a whole new view of human personhood. It renders us forgetful of the image of God in us, as that which frames our dignity and our identity. John Kilner, the professor emeritus of Christian ethics at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I might add, former professor of ethics here at Asbury, in his magisterial work on the image of God, Dignity and Destiny, points out that the image of God is not merely that which marks us as individuals, though it's never less than that, but the whole of humanity and community is collectively marked by the image of God. Therefore, the loss of this is profound and touches not just on the ground of individual dignity, which I think we all rehearse regularly, but the capacities and destinies of the whole human race as it's embodied in society. But today, it is not just the loss of the image of God, but the whole reference to God himself as creator and redeemer has been lost. The complete independence from any sacred order the utter loss of all foundations and external reference points, and even the loss of the recognition of the image of God has, is unprecedented in our society and human history. In a culture where all that's left of personhood is the atomized self, ethics becomes merely a function of feelings, or what Alasdair McIntyre called emotivism, which I addressed more fully in an earlier address. Now this trend has been coming for some time, 
has been noted in such popular books as Christopher Lush's book, The Culture of Narcissism, or Tom Wolfe's book, The Me Generation. But those were predictive books, popular predictive trend books, which finally seemed to have reached the mainstream. For example, it was the actor Brad Pitt, yes, Brad Pitt, who recently summed this up quite well, as Brad Pitt, I've been quoted, and I can address it as well, here it is. <laughs> Quoting Brad Pitt, when I get untethered from religion, it wasn't a loss of faith for me. It was a discovery of self. I have faith that I am capable enough to handle any situation. God bless him. <laughs> Without any external or stabilizing reference points, our culture become increasingly volatile, unstable, on the verge of collapse. This is why chaos, turmoil, fragmentation, and incessant division has become the order of the day. There are no shared external reference points in making any ethical or moral statements. Thus, a statement like, quote, one shouldn't change one's gender is actually taking our culture to mean I personally disapprove of transgenderism. As Keith Stanglin has argued in his new book, Ethics Beyond Rules, contemporary ethics has become nothing more than personal preference. Even the church has shifted its language from that of divine objective revelation, thus saith the Lord, to that of describing the Christian perspective. Third, this new vision of human personhood marks the rise of the therapeutic self. The once particularized language of therapy has now become the common language of social discourse. We freely talk about coping mechanisms, dependent relationships, and dysfunctional families. We call ourselves OG, OCD. We talk about projection and so forth. And one of the reasons for this is the very notion of personhood today is essentially become a socially derived psychological construction. The sociologist Philip Reif called this psychological man, intentionally framed in that way to show how it has displaced Karl Marx's economic man, and I might add uh, John Wesley's evangelical man. Let me say that we are deeply indebted to the remarkable work of Christian psychologists and counselors who are providing pathways to vitality for millions. This is a good and noble calling. What I'm referring to here is when our deepest identity is no longer an issue to God, or even within external structures as family, church, or nation, or even the economics of class and trade. Our very personhood is now defined internally by our perceived ideal psychological state, often driven by social media. This inward turn prioritizes the inner psychological self and places it at the heart of human personhood. Augustine is the one who, in his classic City of God, identified the, what he believed the key feature of the sin nature as the incurvatus in se, the heart turned in upon itself. The late John Paul II called this more simply the interior gaze. I recently saw a Christian Sunday school program which was designed for children. The curriculum was designed around the seven dwarfs of the Snow White story. And it asked the children to look inward and identify which of the seven dwarfs they are, they were. Sleepy, bashful, sneezy, happy, grumpy, and so forth. What the curriculum never did was to summon the children to look outward and out of themselves and see the glory and majesty of God. 
Now, brothers and sisters, this is not a pop cultural problem. This inward gaze has sunk its tentacles deep within the church itself. Fourth, this new vision of human personhood has rendered one's sexual identity and socially constructed gender as the locus for one's deepest identity. This is far more than simply a step down the road of relativism. I grew up in a world where moral relativism was expressed by such statements as, quote, what does it matter what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their bedroom? We've now moved from the bedroom to the public square and social media. Today, it's increasingly evident that your identity as straight, gay, bi, queer, and so on is highly connected to who you are at the deepest level and therefore must be publicly declared. This past June, Kal Nassib, a defensive end for the Las Vegas Raiders, became the first active NFL player to declare that he is gay. In early July, Andrew Cuomo's daughter, Michaelia Cuomo, came out in an Instagram post that she now considers herself demisexual. Earlier, she reminded us, she had publicly declared herself to be at various points in her young life a lesbian, bisexual, queer, but she now tells us she's evolving into demisexual. Now, both of these recent examples from Nasib and Cuomo were, of course, heralded as profoundly brave and authentic public statements. But when we ask, why has it become so important for everyone to declare their sexual orientation or socially constructed gender publicly? Why did Facebook go from two identities to over 50 so you declare to your friends who you assert yourself to be? Even Zoom allows you to clarify in the subline whether you want to be referred to as he, she, or they, them, since your inner self may not at all correspond to any biological markers of identity established at birth. But surely, once gender becomes socially constructed rather than biologically given at birth, then we are quite a long way down the road toward the fragmentation of personhood. Indeed, the whole notion of coming out tells us that the public declaration of one's sexuality or gender identity somehow touches on our truest self. And true happiness must culminate not in providing for a family or having a meaningful career or answering the call of God in ministry. That may have its place, but the apex in this cultural moment today is sexual satisfaction. This is because in one generation, sex has moved from being understood as, even, as either a sacred or even a recreational act, but as a sex as identity, the deepest mark, marker of your personhood. And the coming out is actually a form of conversion, public conversion. Sexual activity and increase in gender identity have now become the very basis of our public social identity. Finally, this new view, view of personhood reveals the profoundly anti-historical bent in late modernity. History today is the story of corruption and oppression. History no longer anchors us in shared values or even aspirations toward a more perfect union. But realize the overflow of history in this is not about what really happened or didn't happen at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC or any other historical event. It's actually about the overthrow of historic institutions like family, church, and marriage. These kind of embedded histories represent external impositions of our freedom and the atomized will and the autonomous self. And the expressive self wants no history but its own history. 
Now, these five aspects of personhood in late modernity are not trends in writings found like in faculty lounges of Ivy League schools or in the writings of Peter Singer, the professor of bioethics at Princeton University. This has become a new vision of personhood deeply embedded in the social awareness and the social imaginary of our day-to-day -day plausibility structures found in countless examples across mainstream America, pop culture, and social media. We don't have time to explore all of these, or even particularly the legal system, but one of the best books to look at the legal implications of this and how it's changed our legal system is Carl Snyder's book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. It was Justice Anthony Kennedy, for example, who wrote in the majority opinion in the case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of life. This is not Hollywood or painter singer. This is a Supreme Court justice speaking on behalf of all of us, what now undergirds our laws. Now, in surveying these five features of this new view of personhood, it might be easy to succumb to despair or feeling immobilized in face of these seemingly intractable trends. And I must admit, the, the zeitgeist of our day can leave you breathless at times. But all such trends and trajectories have a life cycle which cannot stand up into the face of the veritable truths of God's self-disclosure in his word and in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen? The church has faced many formidable challenges in our long history. And I can assure you that what we're facing today does not represent the, you know, the new version of the death of God or any kind of shadowy sunset of the church of Jesus Christ. Things are doing just fine, thank you. The gospel is the still true, though every man a liar. We just must see, not only see, but observe all of this within the larger historical context. In some ways, all five of these trajectories can be summed up in the classic tension scene in Raphael's famous fresco called The School of Athens, painted between 1509 and 1511. Now, this fresco is one of several painted by Raphael for Pope Julius II. Now, the School of Athens is Raphael's summary of the entire import of philosophical wisdom. The painting includes such famous philosophers as Archimedes, Socrates, Pythagoras, and Diogenes. But the center of the painting are two figures, Plato and Aristotle, the greatest of all Western philosophers. Plato is depicted quite particularly with his finger pointing upwards, pointing to transcendent ideals the form of which are only found as reflections in the material world. Aristotle is there shown with his hand downward, pointing to all the particulars of life and discovery, zoology, natural law, rhetoric, psychology, and so forth. Now, Raphael is capturing this one image, the great tension between the universals and the particulars. If Plato's finger were to rise a bit higher, we might move beyond mere Platonic forms and non-personal transcendence. As Christians, we could see him pointing to God, both personal and embedded in his own community, the Trinity. But on the other hand, we also know that God is the author of all of the material particulars of this world. We cannot let Aristotle's hand pointing downward be lost 
or we end up with some deistic, removed God, so-called God of the philosophers, or, or Gnosticism. Aristotle points us to vital, grounded, embedded truths of our universe, the creation of his handiwork, a vision for science and exploration and medicine and the classification of the material world. Yet if Aristotle's hand were to reach a bit lower, he began to capture in some way the trajectory of this worldview we've been depicting, where the transcendent fame is completely lost in the imminent frame. If hand goes low enough, we're left with nothing but an autonomous self, the atomistic will, disconnected from all restraints, whether God or history, and even all boundaries inherent in creation itself. So how is this classic tension resolved? Human history shows that we've been moving like a pendulum back and forth between these, and we're certainly at one of those now. But like all pendulums, they always swing back. They long for resolution and rest. And Raphael resolved this tension by a fresco painted just opposite the School of Athens and intentionally designed to show the resolution and the way forward in the course of history wherever we may find ourselves in this pendulum. Directly across the School of Athens, Raphael painted what is known as the Disputation of the Holy Sacrament. If you haven't seen it in person, I've seen it in person. These are truly remarkable paintings. The word disputation here does not mean a dispute or argument about the Eucharist, but rather a formal examination or declaration about the meaning of the Eucharist. Raphael intentionally painted both frescoes with a similar overall frame, the pavement, the four steps leading up upward, the vaulted ceiling. But in this fresco, the transcendent is manifest. The veil is lifted. We see God himself enthroned in his heavenly abode, surrounded by saints and angels. God the Father is at the top. God the Son is enthroned as king of the universe. And God the Holy Spirit is depicted as a descending dove. This is the transcendent frame which has been lost in late modernity. And below are the peoples of the world, peasants and kings, bishops and laity, rich and poor, men and women, if Raphael was painting this today, he would have joyfully included Asians and Africans and Latinos. But he was a man of his own time. You have to understand that he was trying to pick the world and all of its diversity as he knew it. But the knot which ties the heavenly and the earthly together, and as a centerpiece of this fresco, in the place of Plato and Aristotle in the School of Athens, is the Holy Sacrament. The second, of course, represents the incarnation, which is the knot which ties heaven to earth and brings final resolution to the upward-pointing finger of Plato and the downward hand of Aristotle and gives us the true understanding of personhood. Let me explore briefly how this amazing fresco resolves all five aspects of the self in late modernity, which we now inhabit. First, we explore the dualism which separates our personhood from our physical body. But brothers and sisters, at the heart of this fresco is the bodily incarnation, the second person of Trinity made flesh who entered a body and suffered and died for us, of which the sacrament is emblematic of. The transcendent God of the universe becomes flesh in Christ and he entered into the very particulars of, its crea of his creation. Second, we explored the tragic loss of the transcendent frame and for a solitary, imminent frame which says this world is all there is. Yet here in the fresco, we see the glorious 
transcendence of God revealed in all of its resplendent majesty. The triunit God enthroned in the heavens along with the angels and the archangels and the cherubim and seraphim and the redeemed people of God both here and in the church triumphant. And notice that Raphael depicts the external reference point of divine revelation. You can't see it, probably too small, but Moses is holding the Ten Commandments as well as the cherubim holding forth the word of God, the revelation of God's self-disclosure and of himself and his will and divine purposes for his creation. We see glimpses of our own transcendence rooted in the image of God, and yet our own eminence in our earthly bodily habitation, the reconciliation of the greatest hopes of Plato and Aristotle. Christ as the second Adam, the perfect image of God made possible through the incarnation, comes to fully restore our destiny as bearers of the image of God and icons of his resurrection. Once again, drawn from John Kilner's beautiful phrase, Christ represents the blueprint for humanity. Third, we noted the, noted the loss of personhood into the therapeutic self, which is the self collapsed in upon itself, the incarvatus in se. But it's here in the fresco we see depicted our deliverance from the inward gaze, the endless self-psychologizing, as our eyes are drawn outward and upward to these transcendent realities. Here in the fresco we see that all personhood is externally rooted in the one great I am of the Trinity. Isaiah, in the text we read earlier, rightly rebuked Babylon when twice in that text, 47, 8, and 10, Babylon declares with all the ages, the spirit of the ages, Babylon says, I am, and there's none besides me. The spirit of our age is no different than that of Babylon. And the same headlong destruction which they received will fall upon us if we don't affirm that he alone is the great I am, the one person from whom all dignity and true identity and all personhood must flow. Fourth, we highlight the loss of any transcendent identity out of publicly declared sexuality. Well, the Eucharist represents the knot which ties heaven and earth together to the incarnation. Christ is depicted as sitting on the throne of the universe. Our greatest identity is not anything which frames modern identities, whether ethnic or economic or racial or sexual. Our deepest identity is in Jesus Christ. Sexuality in the biblical vision is linked to fruitfulness. It's linked to the transcendent. The family is the icon of the Trinity. Our bodies are icons of the incarnation. Finally, our loss of history is finally restored in the truest lens of history, which is redemptive history. Here in the fresco, we see the whole history of redemption displayed before us. God's great meta-narrative, which frames history, and God reveals himself to his people through law, through the prophets, and ultimately in and through Jesus Christ, all gloriously displayed. Here we're reminded of the sure historicity enshrined in Jesus' passion, where he suffered not just generically in some timeless void or in God's internal psyche, but in the real history of Pontius Pilate. Jesus' suffering the cross is the lens through which we understand our own history and the healing of the nations, which is extended through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that priceless treasure, that pearl of great price, which you have been given by the grace of God as the definitive response 
to this so-called cultural moment we are in. There is no greater time or more urgent necessity today than the faithful preaching of the gospel. Amen? Amen? And by that, we don't mean merely a transactional message, which does not transact, but leaves your life untouched, but a sanctifying, transformative message of the gospel of holiness, which changes everything. Don't let this culture, this spirit of Babylon, make you flinch or run for cover. Stand boldly in the marketplace of ideas equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This summer we all witnessed the tragic collapse of the Champlain Tower condo in South Florida. Our hearts go out to all those who lost loved ones there. The collapse is known as a pancake collapse as each floor collapsed on the floor beneath it. But remarkably, structural engineers believe that the reason it fell was not because any of the upper floors or any of the floors were particularly weak, but because the foundation of the entire building was compromised, and ultimately the upper floors had no proper foundation to hold them up, and so they collapsed. In the same way it's important, we look beneath the collapsing structures of our society and discern the deeper foundational cracks and erosions which is the true source of our cultural malaise. Only the church can do that. Your task through the preaching and teaching and living out of the gospel is to reunite heaven and earth and restore to this culture the one true foundation for personhood, namely Jesus Christ, the incarnate one who came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. So, Dr. Kenlaw, if you can hear us, Thank you for your wise and prophetic comment to me when I ask, what is the greatest theological challenge facing the church today? Personhood. May God grant each and every one of you the courage and the wisdom to stand in the midst of this generation and recall, remember, recover a deeper vision, a more profound vision for life and identity and personhood which is found only in the triune God. Amen.